This is Thomas DePolo. This is Max. This is Kevin Ham. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. So today's topic, I wanted to talk about like player input in playing games, uh, specifically around like world building or determining like what sort of setting that you're playing in a game. Yeah, I think with world building, it's iron and nickel to start. Uh, that forms like a dense core. Uh, and once you have that dense core... Oh, the atmosphere forms around it? Or, <laughs> yeah, that's good. Oh, the, uh, not that kind of world building. Sorry, man. We, we I'm totally unprepared the... for this then. I have All my notes are for... <laughs> Like how to, how to be a god, you know, <laughs> make, making a world. Uh, in order to invent the universe, to uh, what is it? In order to make a business. In, in order to cre- to bake an apple pie from yeah. scratch, you must first create the universe. Yeah, there you go, Carl Sagan. Yeah, uh, we say biscuits. Biscuit. I was like, where is yeah. the fuck <laughs> is that coming from? It's, it's a southern thing. You wouldn't understand. Oh, I understand biscuits. <laughs> Buttermilk biscuits. Here we go. Anyways. um... I think that a couple of us play other games where like player input does uh, have a large a large place in it. I know uh, Max, you play Unknown Armies a couple of times. Uh, I've played Iron Sworn and uh, Starforged, the space supplement for it. Uh, so I just wanted to see what we thought about like having creative control put into the hands of everyone at the table. If anybody had any thoughts on that, I think it vastly improves the the buy-in from players so they have the ability to, to even if it's only minor changes um it's also it also takes some of the weight off of um gms like i, I know sometimes i know max you've mentioned if someone asks you a question to which the answer doesn't matter you're like roll the d10 there's 10 cookies there whatever um and you can turn that around and say like when they're like how many cookies you can be like well how many cookies should there be let them decide like that's player input at a very very basic level and the player's like oh i made that happen you know i I built that part of the world even if it was only how many cookies were on the platter so i like to put it in as many games as i can i know that the the interpretation of dice rolls in your star wars uh the fantasy flight star wars rpg isn't uh one that you have experience yeah and that's an interesting one because like Star Wars. So one of the questions I wanted to ask in this segment was, excuse me, sorry. One of the questions I wanted to ask in this segment is, what about worlds where there's already the world is built? It's like I'm, I'm looking at playing the the One Ring, which is a new Lord of the Rings role playing game, and like there isn't there isn't a ton of world building left there, uh, or like in Star Wars, it's not like somebody can invent a whole new ridiculous. I mean, that's you know, not makes, entirely true. Yeah. I mean, Star, like, Star Wars, yeah. Star they've literally Wars been doing broad. that for fifty years. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's true. Star Wars so, is more like, broad than Lord of the Rings. Though. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Well, and like the, the difference between like I know with like Iron Sword or whatever, you're you're deciding these core things. Like, is there you know, so, like is there you know an empire? You can't like make that decision halfway through a Star Wars campaign. Like, some things empire? are set. I mean, they literally yeah. did do that. They're like, oh, it's the corporate sector authority. Oh, it's the fucking imperial yeah. remnant. Yeah, so one of the questions uh, you know I wanted to ask was like, how does this still does this still work in games where there are already built worlds? And I think the answer is yes, but I wanted to explore. So that my a more. my thing is, um, I think you should play the One Ring, but in the world of just the Hobbit, like no Lord of the Rings, it's just the Hobbit because that was a that was like there's only we're only going to world build like a small fraction of the world and just imply a larger setting. And like before, he went back and added like all the continuity stuff because he revised it to be in line with Lord of the Rings. But like do 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 just the same that same tradition where it's you know just it's about it's all about the tone and like a few setting rules and then beyond that you can just do whatever. See to me this sounds like an argument about scale 
It's like you only have to focus on the spear of sight and vision of like what the players are immediately going to see, right? Like you, you don't have to worry about, you know, the ancient elven lord from 300 miles away who, you know, once built this bridge or whatever. You know, if, if the players aren't going to get to that bridge, then you don't have to worry about that. Right? Yeah, like the only things that are concrete are the things that are directly experienced by the players. So, yeah, so the One Ring has a little starter adventure, which is fucking amazing. But the last page of it, uh, says it's a quote from one of the books, but he says he looked at the maps and wondered what lay beyond the edges. Maps made in the Shire showed mostly white space beyond their borders. And then it basically says, like this page is the end of your journey. This is the end of your starter adventure. You know, you can continue here by making up your own stuff. You know, or you know, and then it tries to sell you more supplements as they come out. But the idea that like the the One Ring right now is just the Shire and that like small area around. And if you want to make things happen like up north or south, like they basically explicitly tell you like that's just white space on a map. So go crazy, which is a which is awesome. I really like how they did that. <clears throat> and this is a game that has no real explicit. There's no like mechanics or building new worlds in the Lord of the Rings universe. That's all. That's all like subjective. Well, you know? th- there should be. That sounds way better than than like just using the existing setting. Yeah, I think you like, just use Iron Swarm. <laughs> well, no, you um, what what? Because because uh, I like games that have like a little map builder in them. I think that's fun. Yeah, me too. Me too. That's I'm a like, big some, some, of the, some roll of the, the dice. Fun. So, oh yeah, yeah. Like, there's so many. We could do a whole segment on that. Even just like making maps. Maybe maybe that's something for later. I hate making maps of um like interiors of buildings and stuff. But I like I like doing like a a city. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna put this in my back pocket. We could talk about this later. Um, do you think that like in a in a defined setting like that, if you do branch off from what is you know the established canon or the lore or whatever, do you think it's worth having a conversation with someone who's like a huge fan about it and then being like, "Will I know that you know you've you've read the Star Trek encyclopedia from start to finish, but we're gonna defer from that a lot in this because we want to focus on what's cool." Now, would would that like would that change? You know, how does that affect the the dynamic of the game? I guess is what I'm asking. How does it affect the dynamic? of the game if there's source material for it and we're diverging from it yeah um like like would would that change your understanding or like enjoyment of the game i don't think so no yeah as long as i know about it going into it if i didn't know about going into it i would be i would be confused and frustrated the first time it came up but i would very quickly get over it so i mean your your question is like yes that's a conversation to have with your players especially in a world that's already supposedly built like coming from like a media property like star trek or star wars or like uh the expanse or whatever okay you know here we all we all love the system we all love aliens but you know, we're going to be doing, this is my idea for a campaign. Here are the broad strokes. Here are my, like, here's what I want to kind of work on. And, you know, let people understand it and then make sure you have buy-in. But that kind of goes for like, even if you're playing, like, a bog-standard D&D game. I think Alien Alien really needs that because otherwise you've got, like, three creatures. You've got Alien, Space Jockey, Black Oil, and then I guess Predator. If 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 you say to me, we're playing in this established setting, like, like, We'll go with Star Trek because that's the one I know the best. We're playing a Star Trek game in the Star Trek setting, and I'm I make a plan or an assumption, or I I, I base I base a, a a a plan for the session around an assumption in the setting. Like if I say um, that we have faster than light travel, right? Okay, yeah, say yeah. I I assume we have faster than light travel, so I, I hatch a plan that involves okay. So what we're gonna do to to deliver to to get this um. 
to get Captain Picard his Earl Grey tea, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna warp over to to SETI Alpha. And if you say to me, oh well, hold hold on hold on a sec, we're not we're not we don't have warp. We're, we're altering the setting. There's no warp travel. I would push back hard because no one said to me we're not doing that. But after that, I'd I'd, I'd take that into account. Yeah, I think that it's the difference between we're playing a Star Trek game and I've introduced a new planet with a new type of alien, oh, which yeah. is something that happens all the time on the sh- on like pretty much every series, all of them. Versus we're playing Star Trek game, but also um, like there's no um, there's no faster than light travel. I was gonna say there's no Federation, but there also have been episodes where that happened. But like the difference between fundamentally altering the, the universe and and yeah. then just like adding a new thing. That's to exactly it. what I was gonna say. Is I, I would make a distinction between adding something and taking something away, or even like changing changing a, a, a fundamental part of it. The key of it, I think, is keeping in the spirit and the vibe and like the themes of the original setting. Because with Star Trek, yeah, if you introduce a new alien species and a new planet, that's every other episode. Or to go back to the alien example, if you come up with a whole new monster that is lurking around some some desolate planet or was created in a lab, that's the same thing that always happens too. So that you can add those things without even blinking. Yeah, but if you were going to tell me we're going to do an alien game, but in, you know, in this alien world, the corporations are like upstanding good guys. Like, well, you're not even changing the fundamental, like a core value of the alien universe, which I might be okay with, but I would want to know going in that that was the static conceit, you know? Yeah. Well, I would want to know, is that something my character believes or is that like objectively true about the setting? Because that would make a big difference. Practical example. There's a funny joke character I like to use in set games with the Pathfinder Pantheon. Um, Max, you know all about this character. Uh, there's a god named Abadar. He's the god of, of civilization and of uh, commerce and of walls and cities. He's fucking based. His favorite weapon is a crossbow, and his holy symbol is a key. And he also has he also controls the vault of the of uh, the what's it called? It's called the first, the first vault. vault. It holds yeah. the universal. Forms. It holds the universal forms, which are pretty much just the platonic ideals of all the things that exist. Anyway, uh, there's this joke character I like to make, which is a paladin of Abadar, because uh, you can do all kinds of funny jokes about that. Like if you can, one of them being if you can somehow get Mage Hand as a cantrip, you can call it the Invisible Hand of the Market. Anyway, if we're doing a Pathfinder <laughs> game, and I say I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be Sir Roderick, uh, Apostle of the Universal Forms, and you say to me, whoa, 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 so no, no, we're not using Abadar. He's not in the Pantheon. I'm going to push back against that because you said Pathfinder. However, if we're playing Tomb of Horrors, which I am right now, and you say to me, you can add some gods from other Pantheons if you want that aren't the Forgotten Realms Pantheon, and then I add Abadar, and you say, cool, let's do it. It's very different. Right. Or if you say at the beginning, we're playing Pathfinder, but we're doing it and we're using the rules, but we're doing it in a different setting. Like, yeah. Yeah. Or, or I'm sorry, when, when you're playing Tomb of Horrors in fifth, or in we're playing NPF? it in fifth, and uh, okay. my my DM, um, Sir Diggs with hands for the BPL, uh, said you can add other gods if you want, and I said I'm adding Abadar, and he said that's fucking awesome. Is it like Strahd, where there's there? It's like in a pocket dimension where there's different deities. Uh, no, Tomb of Horrors is a Feyrun adventure. It's in uh, the the, it's in the Savage. It's you're, in Chult. Yeah, the, 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 tomb the dinosaur annihilation. jungle. Uh, tomb of Annihilation. Excuse me. Yes, Tomb of Annihilation. Edition. I was I was gonna say because Tomb of Horrors is like a module. It's for it's like a single dungeon. It's not. I, a... I, I misspoke. <laughs> I meant to say Tomb of Annihilation. They're the same subject matter, roughly. It's just the scope is different. But yeah, because Tomb of Tomb of Annihilation is like a very expansive wilderness crawl. Yeah. I, I can confirm we've been playing it on and off for about a year and we haven't even reached the tomb yet we're just <laughs> yeah. i haven't been annihilated once actually we've had three party we had three player deaths so far and we haven't even gotten to the tomb yet that's brutal so so will so the by a dinosaur well one of the uh, uh, another 
potential real life example is like say say I invite you to play in my my Star Trek game and you make a character and, and like what I haven't told you is that in my campaign the, we're going to be like fighting back against the Federation who are evil like obviously there's tropes about how the Federation has some bad things and like and what I want to do is I want to embrace all those. And the player characters are going to be kind of this like re- kind of resistance. They're going to figure out how bad it is, and, like topple it from the inside. Like that might be a really fun campaign. But, oh, but so, if you so made we're playing Deep Space Nine, yeah. But if like if you just made like Will Riker or like Picard, who's like believes fully in in, in the Federation, like you're not. That's like not a good. You wouldn't wouldn't have made that character. No, I, would, if you'd I known wouldn't that. Have. You might have made someone else. I'll tell you so, what I would have done though is I would make I would make Will Riker. And you'd say that's not what we're doing. We're doing this. And I'd say, oh, excuse me. I would I'll make I'll play Thomas Riker. You pull your pull your bus pull your beard yeah, off. Yeah, I'll play yeah. Thomas Riker, the transporter clone who. <laughs> joined the Maquis and stole the Defiant. That's my character. Yeah, there you go. So I, I love how he dramatically takes <laughs> off the fake sideburns and there's nobody else in the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's, it's amazing. Why, why did he have fake sideburns? Why? Because it's, it's dramatic, yeah. We, we, could, we, could, we could pivot here a little bit because we've talked about this now, uh, player input and like understanding of the world. Those two are kind of linked in our conversation here. But we're talking about, so far, like established settings. But what about like entirely homebrew games because to me that's where like player input is like like yeah it's it's great in a homebrew world right what's it what's an example of okay this? so um i remember um, this was probably like 2014 or 2015 i i had been playing pathfinder and i wanted to branch out and like play some other uh games and someone you know you, you go looking on like reddit uh looking for game forums and stuff like that and like a bunch of them where you go to sign up the the gm who's recruiting players is like here's a google document that uh tells you all about my homebrew world or whatever oh, nobody ever reads those and then you click it and it's like 50 fucking pages long and i just like close you know close the tab uh turn off my computer and walk away because there's no way in hell i'm gonna read through all that right but at the same time, you won't read it unless like some author publishes it. And it becomes like one of the greatest you know books ever written, no, fantasy no, books ever written. Then to, you'll to read be, it. Yeah. To, no, I still one hundred percent won't read to it. Be, to be fair, you know, like <laughs> it reads things is, anyway. Is, right? is it worth the effort to read that thing? And then by the time you're done reading it, you're like, oh, anyhow, I really don't want to. Like, and then you'll you'll feel mad for having wasted your time. But let's say that the same guy, the same uh, DM who has this huge, you know, pre-established homebrew world or whatever. Um, has a group of players and he sits down with them for a session zero and he just talks through the overview with players. Here's my idea. What do you think about it? How would you want to change it? Right. Then that's an opportunity for the players to either seize on something they really like and the GM can make a note. Oh man, they really like this. This is definitely going to come up. Or for the players to be like, I don't like this. What if you did this instead? You know, just that sort of like back and forth conversation where the players tell you they tell you what they want to do in the game. And so it's like they're doing it for you. You know, we hear about the the joke, which is like, you know, I, I sit back and let the players talk about it. And they're like, oh, what if, you know, this bad guy is a secret agent? And, you know, you're you're, yep. you're like, you, you, know, you open up your notebook. <laughs> that's a great you open idea. Up your notebook and you're like, oh, that's a great idea. But like, what if you did that from the start, right? What, what if you entered the game with that premise in mind? Yeah, I mean, that, that that's that's fun. And especially, as you know, I think your I think your intro was a little bizarre. That's a terrible way to say it. I think your intro is a little flawed because <laughs> because somebody who writes fifty pages of world building isn't going to want to do that. But if you if you go to the players, say, here's my like outline. What do we, what do you guys want to add to this? You know, like like I may have strong feelings about. I really want to have you know a robust trading empire, so there's going to be cool trading guilds. But I don't give a shit about you know, are there elves or not. Like, what do you guys think? Do we want elves? And if if there are elves, are they going to be like 
you know, D&D style? Or are they going to be different? If they're different, like, how do you think? And maybe someone else says, oh, what if the elves are actually, like, short and live underground? Like, okay, that's neat. Let's, let's experiment with that. You know, it's like, you know, like, I don't necessarily want to listen to someone just read their 50-page document at right, me. Right, right. But if they truly want to have input on changing it, a session zero for that is a really good way to do so it. That's that's one of the reasons why I love Ironsworn, because that's what it does. It just goes through... And uh, during session zero, you do the truths of the setting, which is like, you know, just sort of a line by line, like subject matter. You know, what's the world that we fled from? Like, we're in a new world. This is a new land. It's it's unexplored. You know, it's it's mostly unknown to us. But what, do, what do we leave behind? You know, what what do communities look like? What does government look like? Uh, what about religion, magic, you know, elves, beasts, horrors? Like, you just go through... And you don't have to get, like, into specific details. Like, you don't have to do like you did where you say, like, the elves are short and they live underground. You can say, okay, so we've established that there's elves. Uh, anything, like, super important to note about it? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, they're all innate magic users. Okay, cool. Anything else? All right, no. All right, we'll just tuck that aside. And then when elves come up and play, we'll we'll, we'll go through it together at that time. You know, like... Yeah, you, you you don't focus so much on the details as you do on broad strokes, and then you play the game and you find out about it. Being able to fill in the blanks later is really helpful because I mean humans are pattern seeking by nature. So if you have if you know if you if you run into three NPC elves and they've all been magic users, some player might be like, I think maybe all what if all elves are magic? And you're like, shit, I wasn't thinking about that, but that's a great idea. And now all elves are magic, like it just works, and that's like something that was like figured out kind of in game. Yeah. You know, yeah, absolutely. As you go, so so here's a question. Like, obviously, you can do this really. You can do this like you can just ha- sit down and be like, okay, we're gonna run a fantasy game. Uh, it's gonna be, you know, it's gonna start start with like D and D, but what do we want to add or take away to the setting? But is there a better? Obviously, Iron Swan has an established framework, but are there other systems that have a better framework for actually like dragging you like through the process? So if you want to get really technical or like really really tied down into it um there are a couple of games that help you make maps together there are a couple of games that make create like the histories of worlds there uh microscope comes to mind for me and uh there's like another game from the same guy called kingdoms those are really good for history building if you want to sit down and make out like big details of of your established setting for the setting you are establishing rather is that is that what you were asking about is that your question yeah but it's like what systems what 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 systems are there out there that help you can help you guide guide you through the process Yeah. yeah like i said microscope that's like you go through eras and uh like period pieces uh you can even get down to like specific scenes of history, like really dramatic moments. Uh, you code them whether or not they're like a, a light moment or a dark moment, you know, like a good, a good thing or like a really scary thing or whatever. Uh, there's also like you, you pick, I think they call it like legacies or something like that, which is like something that you talked about briefly, but then like later on down the line, you can talk about it more. Uh, it's, it's a pretty cool, pretty cool game. Uh, I'd recommend it for that if, you know, you're looking to, to create a setting from scratch together with players. Um, I mentioned the quiet year. That's like the map making one that, uh, I know like the McElroy brothers on the adventure zone, they did the quiet year. Uh, and then they turned around and played D and D in the setting that they created with it. It's pretty cool. That's I neat. Don't, be fun to I do. don't think it was intended to do that. I think that the Quiet Year is like a different game with like a, a different focus on. Um, it's supposed to be like about communities and how like relationships between people is hard or something like that. But they were like, "What if we made a post-apocalypse fantasy world out of it?" And they were like, "Sure, why not?" You know. <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to be about like a post-apocalyptic community, but that's a pretty good idea is using that to set up the landscape of the different social groups to actually go adventuring in. I'm also thinking there are 
a couple of other map building games that are explicitly like building up a whole city from scratch. I think they're called like one is called Ex Novo and another one is uh, Beak, Feather and Bone. I'm not familiar with either of these. Do you, uh, you have any more details about them? I have not played them myself. I, uh, I just know the names of them from different places. Okay, Google it real quick. I think Beak, Feather, and Bone, one of the things is you can make your own map or it comes with its own already designed map of a city. And the basic idea is you take turns, like, determining what people say about each building, what the building looks like, and then what's actually happening on the inside of it. You said Beak, Feather, and Bone. And what was the other one? Ex Novo? Yeah. Beak, Feather, and Bone is a cool name, just by, by itself. It is a cool name. I think the idea is that it's a city uh, occupied by, like, Bird people, which is where the name comes from. Yeah, uh, Kinku, uh, Tingu, and Pathfinder, which is like one of the coolest races in Pathfinder. They're just like fighting birds. I know. Um, <clears throat> I know. Like, just some some general advice, you know, outside of using any, any specific um, template or specific thing would be, you know, like less is more. You know, like don't you know you don't need to nail down every single detail of something and instantly come up and play. You want to nail down the really the basics, and then you want to be flexible, um, which may include like if you come up with a cool idea like a few sessions in and you have to change some things. If the idea is so cool that it's worth it, then and everybody's cool with it, then like make some changes. Like actually, no elves had magic, and the three elves you met were like really rare. Like why are they all in that city? Okay, well now you've got a whole another thing to like play with. You know? Yeah, uh, those those are cool. Cool ways to like build the world from scratch and to have player input in. I, I I like those ideas, but I think there were other questions we had about um, how can you have player input in uh, more defined settings. Well, that and, uh, we kind of, we kind of covered that. I, I was curious about horror. Yeah. Like, can we oh, horror. like like a setting like like how how can this work in a game like Delta Green? Or can it work in a game like Delta Green? It's probably more difficult, um, but I think it could still work. Um, for example, if at character creation, a player takes a disorder for their agent, um, and it's like a specific phobia or something like that, um, that is the the player communicating to the, the game runner, the handler even, uh, that, you know, it sure would be spooky if this specific thing made it into play at some point in time. Or, you know, uh, like an agent's backstory. You know, uh, one time I spotted some deep ones when my ship uh, wrecked at sea. Uh, they may have saved my life. Uh, you know, if you keep it vague or whatever. And then later on you found out that that person's been, uh, you know, infected by deep one taint or something like that, right? And then they find it out in play. That's, you know, that's player input in a horror game, right? Am I on something here? Yeah, I think there is something to be said for treating the player's character sheets as essentially a set of scenario prompts or prompts for the whole campaign. That, like, they put points in all this stuff and they're discussing it in their backstory because it's things they want to keep coming up. It's it's like we were talking about, though. A, a module or a scenario in Delta Green is pretty similar to a setting in, like, 5th uh, edition or whatever. It's hard to branch outside of those settings to focus on specific like character sheet moment or, or you know whatever you have on the character sheet like you know using a computer scientist in Kaligati is harder but if a player is a computer scientist eventually you want to have a moment for them to shine or for them to you know be engaged in the horror of the setting in a way that involves whatever their characters get at right yeah i, th I think so and i think there's yeah, you know, I think it's definitely tougher with a system like Hotel de Green, but like you know, there are certainly um, there are certainly 
So like, I'll take me, for example, who had like who did not understand the world of Marsh technologies and had built my own little world based on the little bit that I've heard um, and finds that world to be much better than the world written like as, as the canon is written. It's like there's ways to explore kind of that, like take some of the things that are explored a little less um, and figure out how everybody thinks about them and then just, you know, kind of run, run down those rabbit holes, um, you know, which leaves the world open. It just it's tough. It's just only tough if you're going to try to use, you know, like, well, start that again. It certainly might be tough if you're going to try to use any established modules um, to run. Some of them, some of them don't matter at all. They don't interact with the world like really at all. They're just encapsulated, but some do. So you don't have to be careful on what you're running there. And you certainly want to make sure that if you're, if you as a GM are, are furiously laying down conspiracy track in front of the players, that they're not world building away from that too strongly, or at least too far from your ability to keep laying down track, because that would get difficult. Yeah, I think it would be hard to use it with uh, pre-written modules, but I think the thing about Delta Green is because it hides so much of its lore or encourages you to hide so much of it, you can really just treat everything the players hear as a potential conspiracy, as a potential lie, until they actually get eyes on what's really happening. Yeah, I, I used to tell the people I ran games for, please don't read the Handler's Guide. Like, I, But that was, you know... I used to ask them that, please don't read the Handler's Guide, because I didn't want them to, you know, open up my presence for them too early. Uh, but there's nothing that says you can't completely change or throw out elements of the Handler's Guide, right? And if the GM can change it, then the players could have a hand in changing it as well. I think anything that's in a, doc in a document or a book that is supposed to be GM's eyes only, I think is fair game to change without warning the players. Absolutely. Oh, without warning the players. Yeah, yeah, that too. Because then you'd be like, wait a minute, the the solution to this puzzle and this module that we're playing is supposed to be, you know, the number seven. And then you get... And, and, then, and then you slap that player's hands and say, no, bad. And you get to be like, well, why the fuck are you reading the module? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> um, if I've read the module, though, and the solution is different, then I would say to the GM, fucking well done. I like it. Yeah. Well, there's, there's different different kinds of players, right? Some are like, oh, bravo, and then others who will get, like, angry or, or butthurt about it, right? And this is what I was getting at earlier when I asked you, like, if I changed the, a, a principle of, like, the Star Trek universe, how would you feel? And, you know, there's there's two different reactions to it. So, you know, one of the, the things I say all the time is, like, know your players, know your audience. If you've got the type of person at your table who doesn't like deviating from the established norm, then maybe the player input uh, elements we've talked about really aren't for that type of person. Well, there's also a difference between, like, let's say, I mean, again, we talked about this a little bit, but just to hammer the, the idea home, let's say we're playing a D&D a, a &D game and my character, and, and we know we're going to face werewolves. So my character, like, all right, I'm going to go get a silver sword. And then I go to attack the werewolf, and the DM is like, oh, silver doesn't work. Okay, right, well, buddy, like, Werewolves are a thing in this universe. So, like, I would know the basics. Like, you know, like my or like my character is a level six monster hunter. Like, you don't think like yeah, that. Like, he yeah. would know this. You know, if if gold was what kills werewolves, he would know that because it's like in universe knowledge. You know. So, but mainly it's like just like you know, don't use this kind of stuff to pull a gotcha on players because that's not fun for anyone. Use it to you know set players up. Like when you go to buy a silver sword, like, oh, you know, you, you know, you see all sorts of gold swords and then, you, you know, you, you strike back to your old memories and you're like, wait a second. I knew it was, a, I knew it was, you know, it was a type of, you know, mineral that, you know, caused damage, right? I better double check. Oh right, yeah, you know, it is, it is gold. Okay. Well, yeah, now you know, whatever it is. Here's a thought so, though. So here's, here's a thought. Well, we, we all have a thought. Oh boy. Oh, everybody, everybody has a thought. Everyone is, multiple people are tapping. <laughs> Well, we can go ahead. <laughs> okay, okay, mine is quick. Here's a thought. Suppose you're playing a game like Delta Green or um, 
I know something that's ostensibly set in the modern day in in a world that is ours, except for the fantastical and the supernatural exists. And there's a werewolf, and you grab, you know, gr- grandma's silver silver bullets. So I was going to say silver pie slicer, but sure, silver bullets. And you yeah. you you shoot the werewolf with it, nothing happens, and you say, "But werewolves are supposed in in lore and mythology. Werewolves are weak to silver." And then the the I say to you, "Motherfucker, werewolves don't exist in real world. Why would you expect that to be true?" Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, horror horror that's, that's the difference. The thing I hate most about every urban fantasy setting is that they all have to do like list every legend and then like list which ones are true. Like in, in y- y'all remember in Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines when when Bender's like giving you the tutorial and he like starts listing all the things that do and don't harm vampires. It's like yeah, uh, silver's really bad for you, but uh, garlic we don't care about garlic. Garlic's I don't mind that so much because that is also true in history. Like for instance, I'm trying to think of a good example of a thing that is often thought to be true but isn't. Like uh, oh, is isn't it often thought to be that that uh, Catherine the Great died by having a stroke on the commode? No, it's it's the legend is that she died having sex with a horse. Right, right, right. Okay, so there's a thing that's not true. There you go. Yeah, but imagine that we were playing Catherine the Great, and and I mean I mean Catherine, like 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 I'm formatting <laughs> okay. that as a, a World of Darkness title, and and at the beginning at the beginning of the of the um, of the video game. A character comes on screen. A character comes on screen, and he lists like every legend about Catherine the Great, and tells you which ones are true or not, which ones are false. I'd say the good. That way, I, I have established true. the expectations yeah. of Joe, the setting. Joe, Joe Dimaggio comes and he explains how um, she did indeed invite <laughs> European royalty to the Russian court, and it did lead to several meaningful reforms, but also made her unpopular with both the aristocracy and the peasantry. There's a cutscene sequence in both um, Blood Omen Legacy of Cain and Soul Reaver Legacy of Cain in which the protagonist uh, has a soliloquy in which they explain the weaknesses of vampires. That's I don't mind that. You're setting the rules for the setting. You know what it is? You know what it is? It's the beginning it's the beginning of 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 Dune where the vam- the the vampire the Baron Harkonnen is like, "Ah yes, isn't this a magnificent thing that I, the Baron Harkonnen, oh, do?" All the and then he starts talking about all this shit that yeah. he hates like Get on with it. This is Canley, Piter, Vendetta, and I will savor every moment of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And but- <laughs> I want him to know that I Baron Vladimir Harkonnen am the instrument of his family's demise. The no, extinction you're, you're, you're of House Atreides here. and the ascendance of House Harkonnen. Ian McNeese, so Ex- fucking good. Exposition, exposition is ham-fisted. What if the players had a, a chance to get involved instead? Right, they have right? a chance that's, to observe Catherine point. the Great inviting European royalty to the Russian czar's court. I thought okay. you were going to go somewhere else I, with I, observing I Catherine to, the Great there. That's, you have to I get was to trying the end to of the get game. this in earlier. Have, have, have y'all seen um, The Great on Hulu? I've seen the, the first show? season. Okay, it's hilarious. It's hilarious, and uh, it sounds like that you're familiar enough with the subject matter that you'd find it even more funny. Potentially. I don't know. Huzzah! Huzzah! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I recommend that. Um, but anyway, um, ex- expo- if you take away like the elements of exposition that are you know ham-fisted or lengthy, and uh, to go back to the werewolf thing, right? Uh, Kevin, you're a level 6 uh, monster hunter. Uh, what is what is it that werewolves uh, are weak to? And then you know Kevin can give an answer, or uh, you can use dice uh, to roll and say like you know why don't you roll knowledge arcana or knowledge nature to to see if you know exactly what it is. And if you you know if you get a good high roll on the dice or whatever it is that you use to denote sex uh, sex. 
Wow. <laughs> so we are talking about Catherine the Great. We are talking about horsecock. Anyway, <laughs> whatever you used to denote success on your dice roll, right? And then the player, if you if you if you win the dice roll, the player gets to say, "Oh, it's silver." But if there's you know some room for uh, you know explanation there that the GM can explain, be like, "Well, uh, it it might be silver, but you know what? I hear there's a rare herb that you can use on pitted rounds to shoot uh, werewolves with." And then you have another quest to go on right there, right? That's uh, that's one of the things that they do in Ironsworn. Uh, you can roll to gather information, and if you get a strong hit, then the player can be like, oh, I know exactly what we need, and you can go from there. But if you get like a weak hit, uh, you can introduce like another quest or another challenge or something to engage and to keep things moving forward, right? There's like a degree of control there based on like what the dice mechanics can tell you. We didn't talk about unknown armies at all. Did you want to talk about that? Max? Uh, sure. What's the What's the question? Uh, there's not a There's not a question. I just noted that uh, I I just know unknown armies has corkboarding, and I'm not familiar with corkboarding at all. And I think that you and Tom are. Yeah, corkboarding essentially lets you like come up with the setting for your game. Yeah. So unknown armies is a game that has a really, really, really dense body of lore to it. There's like a vast collection of source books and a uh like a at least at least a couple tie-in novels. And the third edition of the game tries to dispense with most of that and just do player-generated setting. I think that the level to which it succeeds at that is variable because I, we, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the reason the reason I, I didn't I didn't bring this up is that I, I don't have a lot of thoughts about this that I didn't already share in the Unknown Armies uh, 33.3 FM episode. But the basic the basic gist of it is that it's a collaborative world-building process that works very well when everyone is familiar with what it is that they're supposed to be doing, which means that if you arrive at the table with people who aren't who aren't prepared, then you get stuck very quickly, and that's an issue in a that's an issue if the idea is supposed to be that you don't know the that you don't need to know of like a, a bunch of setting lore in order to participate because the best unknown armies corkboarding I've I've um I've seen was when everyone at the table had some idea about the setting and the GM had already established a basic premise and uh that made a huge difference in both how fast it went and also how enjoyable it was and how good the end result was cuz it's it's night and day so I would say that it's a great, it's a super cool um, exercise, and it's very fun to do with people who already know what they're doing. I wouldn't necessarily call it super well designed because there is that element of it's very easy to get stuck. It is very easy to get a result that not everyone is happy with if not everyone is on the same page. And the issue is that the way that you get on the same page is by like establishing a lot of background shit, which then is no longer collaborative world building. Is there a way uh, to make that better? Like, do you have any ideas for how to improve that outcome? Uh, no. So every every attempt I've seen at alternative or improved corkboarding has solved problems that, in my opinion, were not the actual core issues with corkboarding. Like Torrenson and then and Frank and I used to used to argue about this. I think we still do argue about this. That that those um, there there are lots of of attempts to make it easier to to do things like generate um, like like harden your characters' stress meters or to come up with identity features or whatever. 
And I don't think that's the core issue. I think the core issue is that Unknown Armies, and this is something that we talked about on that episode, Unknown Armies is a setting that is very unlike the popular media that is that the, the players are likely to be familiar with. So if you tell them, oh yeah, it's like uh, Tim Powers, it's like Last Call, they're going to be like, what's that? And they'll be like, oh, it's like um, American Gods. And they'll be like, oh, I heard there was a TV show about that, but I didn't watch it. And they'll be like, okay, well, it's um, it's like uh, Kraken by China Memeville. And they'll be like, nope, never heard of it. It's like uh, Constantine, but the comic, not the movie. Oh boy! So there, there's not going to be there's not going to be um, a, like a baseline of understanding in the same way. And so one of the things that can happen is you can collaborative world build like that. And um, a lot of unknown armies is about tone rather than um, like exact setting stuff. And, right. So it's more like more like a vibe. Yeah, but the issue is that the issue is that that's. It's it's a it's something that's that's difficult to grasp if you are not familiar with the source material. And so as as the DM, you can accept that you're going to get something an end result that is you know not exactly what you expected, and that's part of the fun. But I feel like also that can lead you that can get you it can get you into trouble if if you're just with and th- th- this this isn't just on armies. This is all collaborative world building. the 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 issue is 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 always when the round robin gets to somebody and they don't they don't have an idea that they like or they don't know what they're supposed to be doing and then you've got a table full of players waiting for one person to make a move and Tormson insists that this is my fault this this is a me problem and i i don't agree i think this is an issue that that you can run into with any collaborative world building and uh i just want to say that uh, this is yet another attempt to uh to slander my greatness millen millen the great I mean, it seems like it seems like a, a system that's that regimented you should be able to be like pass or you know I don't have anything. Kevin, have here's here, here actually um rather rather than like throwing, you know, continuing the stupid argument, I actually have a way that I can test my hypothesis. Kevin, you run a lot of Star Wars, right? That's true. When you when you've been running Star Wars, have you ever been like, "Okay, you got you rolled a triumph, come up with what you do on the triumph and had the player not know what to do?" It happens, yeah. I think that 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 is a little microcosm of, and like that's that's pretty easy to resolve because there's lots of good mechanical examples in the book. Well, I would I mean so as a good example is I would do the same thing if I was running if I was going on the table having everyone input to world building, and and someone like didn't have an idea. The first thing I go to when it happens with the triumph is like, what does the rest of your party? Does anyone else have an idea what could happen? So I'd be like, all right, well you know everyone's you know, Tom had an idea, Jake had an idea, Max, you don't have any ideas. Anybody else got something for yeah. Max's round? Give him a so- start. Yeah, so that that's that's good because the, the 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 question is at that point, how do you make sure that everyone is getting their turn to to input to the process when if it because if, if the result of having no ideas is okay, someone else gets to go, then you've routed around the the roadblock, but you've also you're also creating a result that not everyone has direct investment in. So how do you? Cause, and I, I think I think this is the, the core of the issue is that I'm 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 on your side, Kevin. I think that if someone genuinely doesn't know what to do or 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 isn't interested in coming up with something, let someone else come up with something. I think that's great, but it can lead to an end result that not everyone is invested in. And I think this was this this has been an issue for us with unknown armies, if I remember correctly. So let me use the same example. So say say it's Max's turn and you don't have an idea. I wouldn't want someone else to come up with the whole idea, but I'd want someone to give you like a a start, a prompt, like hey, what about uh, talking about you know, how magic works. So what about, you know, like give them something. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's going to give I, you a jump start. That's yeah. how I came up with my, uh, with my character for the zero yen game is there were, there was some conversation about trains and I didn't know what to make my guy's job. And then I, and then someone mentioned something or other. And I realized that I could make him the guy who cleans up <laughs> all of the suicides. 
and that was like the the that was pretty much the rest of the characters came from that but moment. Also, um, to to quote Rush, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Like that's you know if 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 it comes to your moment of like the the collaboration and you don't have anything, it's also acceptable for you to be like you know what man, uh, I'm not a hundred percent into this. I like what you guys have. I'm going to abstain from from adding on to this. I don't have anything else I'd like to add. That's that's fine. That's fine too. Yeah, I think as, as long as they as long as they are cool with not being that contributive. Um so like I the first thing I do is I let other players give them a prompt and if they're still like I don't really know. Like, All right, well like, we'll keep going but just, you know, are you okay with this l- low level of input? And so some players may be like, yeah, I don't want to, I'm new to this. I'm not sure. I don't really have any ideas. I just want to watch. Like, that's fine. You know, you can be a, you know, a, a I don't say low effort because it's not, I don't mean low effort, but you can be a, you know, a low input player and still it's contribute. It's not engaged on that one, one facet. But like, you could also give them a token and be like, at a later part of this, you can go twice if you wanted to, you know? Yeah, that's true. Or be like, hey, if someone else has an idea and you have an idea for it, you know, let's give you like a... You can you can help out with that one or whatever. So there's a lot of ways to kind of navigate that. It's uh, alley oops and uh, you know it's it's yes and and other like improv techniques, right? Or mm-hmm. No, but. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Ask, ask that again. Uh, <laughs> it's 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 alley oops and yes ands and other like improv techniques, right? <laughs> no, discussion's over. <laughs> you killed it. <laughs> Cut to the credits. So, uh, seriously, there, was there anybody else wanted to talk about anything on this? Uh, I see uh, Tom had a, a lot about Heart, and I'm not familiar with Heart. Yeah, tell us about tell us about it. All right, so Heart is Heart is designed in a lot of ways to just really be responsive to getting as fast as possible to the stuff the players are telling you they want to be doing. Uh, so there's some stuff just in the way characters are built for that, and there's stuff just in the way the setting itself is built for that. So I don't know if there's one part of it you guys want me to go into first. That that reminds me of something that Max said a long time ago that really stuck with me. Was uh, Matt Max used to say, like, uh, lucky charms, but I only want the marshmallows. Yeah. <laughs> True. Yeah. That, that, that's just stuck with me in the years since since you've said that. And that's what that sounds like to me with heart is like get to the important part of what the players want, right? Basically, yeah. I'm going to go back to the thing I said earlier about the character sheet as a set of prompts because that's really what heart leans into. Uh, So when you're making a character, the first thing you do is you pick your calling, which is like your motivation to go on adventures. And like the big part of your calling is that it has a set of different story beats uh, you can choose from. And every session you choose for two off the big list and you tell your GM, I want to work towards these. And then the both of you work together to sort of bring them up in play and find ways to incorporate them into what's going on. And once your character fulfills one of them, uh, you gain a new ability. It's your whole, this is your whole advancement system following out the sort of narrative arc. So it is a system of advancement that relies on the player and the GM working together to have this particular aspect of the adventure in the adventure yeah so in practice has that has that led to like the the player being like can we steer this way and the gm being like yes yeah exactly i think there's there is a an actual play for heart on rppr that is run by the game's designer and at one point i think ross asked oh is this the person who hates me for what i've done because he's trying to hit that beat where he encounters somebody who absolutely hates his guts for something terrible he's done. That sounds like 
um, in D&D 5th edition, you know, players have that section of their character sheet that doesn't always get the most attention. The uh, ideals, bonds, flaws, and personality traits or whatever. I, I've had characters that I've made for 5th edition where one of the things will be like, I... I owe a great debt of service to somebody or something like that, but there's no reason that a GM has to work that into the thing. But for a heart player character, then there's an incentive for both the player and the GM to keep trying to come back and to those those callbacks, right? Right. I think the best D&D way of putting it is that in heart, you don't have XP. You have that stuff, and like exploring that stuff is how you level up. I like that. That's good. It's better than, uh, you know, death-based character advancement where you, you try to kill stuff more good or to earn more stuff to kill stuff more good or... And there are a couple of beats like that where it's like kill a big monster or punish somebody for wrongdoing, but it's not... You can only take each beat once, so you can't keep hitting the same notes over and over again. Right. That's... Uh, uh, this is another thing that my... my, my podcast co-hosts have have said to me that have stuck with me tom the one uh thing that you've said in the past is like players can choose their own type of fun your own flavor of fun and that's what that sounds like to me too yeah and the classes themselves are really good at that because the classes all have kind of weirdo abilities that signal the gm give me opportunities to use this and they also represent actual like factions and social groups in the setting so when you pick one of them it, it brings in the stuff that kind of person naturally cares about. Like one of the classes is called a dead walker and a dead walker is somebody who's died and come back. And now they can travel across like the lands of the dead to get to places in the living world. So when you play a dead walker, suddenly now a big part of your campaign is going to be about interacting with ghosts and taking these long journeys through purgatory and different afterlives and things like that. And those are part of the setting, like, as is. You can bring them in or mention them if you want, but it's not really going to get the spotlight attention uh, without a dead walker in the party. That So the stuff with Heart was reminding me of a game I played a little bit called Orbital Blues, which is basically Cowboy Bebop without, you know, the numbers filed off. And it was a lot of fun. Um, and in that game, every character has a trouble. So I'm going to use the, tr- the example trouble. It's called Devil in a Bottle, like you're an alcoholic. So... You answer two two of these five questions during character creation, which is like, you know, what is your favorite kind of booze? Who's your oldest drinking buddy? You know, what's your hangover cure? And then any time in play, when you answer another one of those questions, you gain essentially experience points, as well as you have other triggers, like when you go cold turkey or you have consequence from a hangover or whatever. But that, that idea of like answering questions about your character to gain XP, but also build your character kind of from the front is a neat, a neat thing. And I'm glad I'm seeing it in more, more stuff. And it, it worked really well, yeah. It sounds like it's the same kind of philosophy, yeah. Now, for both of these examples, do they come at odds with, like, plot? Or, I'm just thinking, you know, sometimes the person who's running the game has a direction that they want to take the game, and sometimes, like, a player-driven thing can kind of steer away from that. Does does a game like Heart, does it encourage the GM to you know, deviate from their idea of, of what the story is going to be to focus on uh, these aspects of these character sheets? Uh, it, it really a game that encourages you to build the plot out of, like, the stuff that's on the character sheets, out of the player's callings, and what kind of problems can you throw at them that can be solved with the skills and abilities they've got. Come at it with a more open mind than, like, a set beginning and end point then, huh? Yeah, it's really one you try to build together. It's very much like a... 
you're laying the tracks right in front of the train car. Does it have a does it have modules or scenarios? Uh it doesn't really have it doesn't have official modules or scenarios. There's a couple of cam campaign frames you can use to set up different campaigns. Like there's one where you're all kind of protecting one village together and there's one where you're like uh exploring a city in a different dimension, but they're not really hard plot lines it's more let's just here's a cool framework here's a cool setting here's how you can build out adventures there okay no that's cool too yeah that's really cool too just this sort of broad broadly painted picture that you get to go in and put all the details on huh yeah it really pushes a super open-ended style of play so it's hard to kind of come up with a specific module there are a couple of fan created ones in different places so one thing that seems like it seems like the uh so I'm coming to this kind of conclusion that games that allow more creative freedom like that, more player input world building, are more gameable by like a power gaming, like a player who like want to get all the XP as fast as you can, like power power run all the prompts in, in heart, all of a sudden I have a lot of XP, but like that, that's not the game. So like, while that's true, those kind of people just aren't going to enjoy that kind of gameplay and you, you wouldn't enjoy playing with them. So I feel, I feel like they kind of weed themselves out, but it does add the risk of the more world building you get, the more potentially world rooney like a power gaming player could be oh oh this uh there's a thing about this in starforge right so one of the games i'm playing with a friend of mine is called trade secrets where our characters are built around you know being economic you know traders right and also like uncovering like discoveries and mysteries of the universe and the way you advance in in uh starforged is you have like your bonds legacies track which you get uh to fill in Based on making connections with people, you know, doing quests for them, developing a relationship with them. So as a, a trader, we've, we've been filling that one in at a pretty steady rate. But uh, there's also a discoveries track uh, that we've been filling in because that's like that's the focus. That's what we really wanted to do is just like engage with the exploration side of the game. Both of these have their tracks. And once you, you know, you fill in a certain segment, you get two XP from it. Once the track is completely filled in, however... You only get one XP for, you know, reaching those like milestone points in it. So there are like some games have that as a way to cap that sort of power gaming or metagaming uh, experience. You could still do it. You just get rewarded less for it. So it wants you to branch out and mm, explore other parts of the game. Yeah. So there are there are games that are that are like that. They're, they're still like you can let the players steer things without it being like the only thing that they do. Does, uh, does Heart have a way to, you know, I guess I, the question is, does it does it want to prevent you from going through those things or can you max it out and then run out of stuff to do or what? Uh, it has kind of a pacing system, so you can only fulfill two beats per session. Uh, it's also split into different levels. So, like, there are minor beats where you gain minor abilities, major ones that will give you more powerful abilities, but it might take you one or two sessions of actively working towards them to actually get there. And then once you kind of complete the narrative arc and you've done what you were set out to do when you took the calling, you gain what's called a zenith ability, uh, or it leads you up to a zenith beat, which will give you a zenith ability. And a zenith ability is basically this super powerful ability that lets you leave a permanent mark on the setting in some way, but the cost of it is it kills you when you use it. Oh, yeah. There's a cap there, I think. <laughs> yeah, so it's definitely like you can gain this badass power, but the first time you use it, 
uh, either kills you or it changes you in some way that prevents you from being a player character anymore because it, it's a very body horror focused game sometimes. I really feel like the heart devs and the over to lose devs uh, had some cross pollination. They're there. probably basing both of them are probably basing mechan- their mechanics and their narrative design on a, a third game or series of games that came before. Could, could be. I really yeah. appreciate that about like games that build off of other mechanics. You know, like the the powered by the apocalypse becoming like Blades in the Dark yeah. becoming so like, the Forge. Like this sort of evolution. The, the Orbital Blues version of that is called Swan Song. Once you have enough blues built up, um, and you decide that this this scene is like you know the end of your character, um, you basically make you declare that it's your Swan Song. You put on and when you make when you make a character, you pick a theme song. So that make sure that theme song is playing. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and, You're gonna and, yeah, basically all your week. attacks uh, are <laughs> uh, all your attacks are at advantage. They're all deadly. Um, you take no damage, but you suffer a mortal wound and die at the end. So it's a really fun oh, way man, to decide to go out on your yeah, to go out on your on your own. That's so yeah. cool. I yeah. want to play this game now. And. Uh, so you get to decide when you're going out, and that's such a great way to do it. Yeah, a game I had a lot of fun. My, uh, one of my friends ran like the starter module, starter like world. It's very Blades in the Dark esque, where there's like a little star system with a bunch of different things happening, and you just kind of you know bounce around and, and, and interact with them as, as you see fit. It was a lot of fun. It sounds really cool. Yeah, I want to play this too now. It's also one of the best laid out books. Um, it's got like whole page ads for like old tech. And really sweet, like election propaganda and stuff. It's just, it's it's one of the best laid out books I've seen, just in terms of like being a good book. Some of the art looks like old roadside uh, yeah. billboards and stuff, from what I remember. Yeah, exactly. Like the table of contents is like an old, like 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 black and or old, like red and white checkerboard, like uh, like deli counter menu. It's solid. It's good. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, I like that. Or I recommend that. <laughs> Is there uh, anything else we wanted to touch on? Um, yeah, we I don't know how to. I don't know how to segue. Yeah, well, you said you had a werewolf segue potentially for paint the scene. Right. All right. So go just shoot, just shoot Warner Dan as hard as you can. We'll make it work. Uh, hit that. Hit that rewind. <laughs> hit that rewind <laughs> no. All right. So the idea for paint the scene is that it comes from the idea that you can get people invested in a scene by asking them leading questions. Like you, you tell them to use the werewolf example. So this murder was definitely committed by a werewolf, but but there are, I'm thinking of the Dresden Files, there are four different types of werewolves in the city, each with their own powers and weaknesses. With each one of you guys, what's one clue that points to a specific pow- a specific werewolf here? And so you would look Someone says, uh, well, it looks like they ate the woman's heart, and that's the specific type of werewolf trait, right? Something like that, yeah? Yeah, there you go. So there's a specific kind of werewolf that eats people's hearts. Okay. Like I'm thinking so it's of like a, le- a, le- a leading question for the players to answer, and that's how they have the input. Right. You present the idea or a theme or something to the players as a question, and then they kind of build out the details to make it true and bring it into the scene. Like the example, the author of the original blog post gives is this place used to be a really busy bustling town but now it's a, a dying what are some of the things that see you see that convince you of that or you've just entered this swanky mansion what kind of stuff is around that immediately tells you the owner is a medusa so you get to describe like a dilapidated town or you know for the medusa one it's like statues yeah, lots of statues no, mirrors. <laughs> no yeah i was gonna say no mirrors no mirrors. Got it. Yeah, yeah, that was good. I have a philosophy, or I'm coming to a philosophy where, like, the 
like the amount of time you should start the game. I'm coming to this philosophy where like if you spend more than 30 minutes prepping for your game, you're spending too much time prepping for your game. Um, and a lot of this plays into that where it's like, you know, I would never think like the example in the paint the scene for like the old town, the fact that like the parking lot of the bank is being used for a flea market because the bank is, is closed. Like I would never think about that world building wise, but now I have like a closed bank I can use in a later scene, a flea market where players can find, maybe find some interesting stuff, like a cool characters hang out there. Like it's got like three or four like things I can use as a, as a GM with the player coming up with, with the answer, like by, by them painting the scene. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tight the Delta Green. Um, everyone knows Last Things Last Leaves. That is an example. You get to Bauman's house. And it's like this this man lived a sad life all by himself. What are some signs of that? And then you get to say, oh, uh, you know, the the cough or the uh cigarette stains on the uh the shades or the amount of dust on top of all the surfaces. Uh the aged photograph of his granddaughter that's at least several years old and there's no updated one. You know, that that sort of stuff, right? The players could just as easily uh have that level of input. Right. I think the guy who says he's kinda incorporated some of the leading questions for this into his scenario prep instead of actual descriptions of different places. Yeah. And it just struck me because we talked a long time ago about how you can usually only get three lines of exposition out before the players sort of start to tune out. So I think that really is a great way to get them engaged because it lets them do no, it. Make the, make the players give you the three lines of exposition before they tune out. <laughs> they, they give you one and then they turn their ears off. <laughs> well, hopefully because it makes them feel like they own a little bit of the setting now. So yeah, it yeah, makes them yeah. more attentive to it. That's the idea. Uh, player input equals more player engagement. I definitely have observed that when players feel a sense of ownership for setting elements, they are uh, much more engaged. Uh, oh, like, yeah. I think I've told you guys about my, uh, my, my my friend in my Rogue Trader game who the running joke is that he's he's not a murder hobo, but the running joke is that he's a murder hobo. Yet in the Rogue Trader game, he has gone to great lengths to ensure that the crew is looked after. They're well-provisioned. They're well-equipped. And everyone's just like, what, what, what the hell is wrong with you, man? <laughs> it's great. <laughs> well, you know, uh, the, the stories you see are like a, like a, a funny Twitter post where it's like the the you know there's the NPC that I prepared for the players to like, but then there's the gnome you know farty McFart pants that the players completely latched onto. Yeah, yeah, like that that's telling you that the players care about your game, but they want to care about the parts that they have a say in, like the gnome the gnome that they got lean to into name. the parts that they engage with, like we always say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and you know what you take if, if if you have the big bad evil guy you wanted them to focus on if they kill farty mcfart pants what do you think the players yeah, are gonna leaning do leaning right? into what the audience engages with that's how Braun became a major character in the game of thrones tv show in my uh yeah but it's start- also how the, like the last season of the show happened Oh, that, no, it, I mean, no, 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 no they leaned, leaned away. away I feel, no, I, no, I feel like that was, that was a result of, of definitely listening to people. I just don't know if they were listening to the right people. They were listening to each <laughs> other saying, we want to get off this uh, Game of Thrones train and go work on Star Wars. That's what, that's what happened. That's it worked, what out, like it worked out so well. Yeah, it worked out so well. I, uh, I leaned far too hard into this NPC. So right before my last Star Wars game, I asked the Night of the Opera people, I was like, hey, give me an idea and somebody was like a charger fan fuzzy from that server said a charger fan who they're a little like bat guys with an unreasonable amount of knives so later on in the campaign in the game uh i needed an npc just 
to make something happen. So I had this like little treasure fan like attack the party with knives, and the party like stopped him. They were like, "What are you doing?" Like it, 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 you know, he's acting like kind of childish, and like the knives were like crappy, like you know, crummy knives. And it it, it turned out like I leaned, I, I went too hard on like making this guy cute because now he's a permanent member of the party, but. Uh, I would made it so he was like a ostracized, like the bounty hunters gave him like a fake bounty just to like get him out of their out of the hair. They were like, "Yeah, go, go fight, go go capture this bounty little guy." And like they're all bull- being bullies to him and stuff. And that's so the party immediately like fully adopted this <laughs> this Jadger fan who loves knives. It's great. And they went to completely destroy the bounty hunters guild. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that's that, that that's coming. Yeah, game. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops, love it. <laughs> How dare you be mean to this? And I was like, "Put the plot over thing. here." <laughs> oh shit, that's so fucked up. Fucked up. <laughs> oh well. But our friend, like everyone's having a good time. Yeah, no, it was good. Having a good time is what matters. Yeah, yeah I think uh, players players are having a good time. You know. All right. Any other uh, parting shots on warbuilding stuff? We've meandered. We've built a, a, a mighty world here with this podcast episode. Yeah, I, I, there's just the thing that I wanted to focus on, and I don't think that we're focusing on it. So I'm going to drop out of this discussion now. I don't think this is the the podcast conversation for me. Yes, and. That's a good cut it there. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's the, that's the cut. Cut print, good segment. <laughs> <laughs>